The Water Values Podcast is sponsored by the following market-leading companies and organizations. By Xylem, Let's Solve Water. By the American Water Works Association, dedicated to the world's most important resource. By Black & Veatch, Building a World of Difference. By Can Do, providing actionable insights from utility wastewater data to improve environmental and public health. By Mentor APM, Intelligent Asset Management Software, Built for Water. By 374 Water, pioneering a new era in sustainability. By Woodard & Curran, high-quality consulting engineering science and operations services. And by Intera, innovation and stewardship for a sustainable tomorrow. This is Session 207. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGimsey. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGimsey and thank you so much for joining me. Hope everyone is doing great. You know, Justice Breyer announced his retirement this week from the U.S. Supreme Court, so it's only fitting that we discuss a Supreme Court case on this episode of the Water Values Podcast. We have the great Robin Craig on this week to discuss Mississippi versus Tennessee, which was decided by by the Supreme Court last November. Robin holds the Robert C. Packard Trustee Chair in Law at the USC Gould School of Law, and Robin's going to fill us in on this important case and what the ramifications of it might be for state water policy. And as per normal, we begin with a hearty thank you to our sponsors, Xylem, the American Water Works Association, Black & Veatch, Can Do, Mentor APM, 374 Water, Woodard and & Curran, and Intera. What a terrific collection of impactful companies that have decided to support the water industry, thought leadership, and education we offer here. So thank you all. And I'd like for all my listeners to please do me a favor If you work for or with any of these sponsors, please thank your boss or thank your contact at that sponsor firm and tell them that you appreciate their leadership in the industry through the sponsorship. You'd be surprised how far that simple note of thanks will go. And as long as you're letting the sponsors know that you appreciate their support of water industry education and thought leadership, why not leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, CastBox, or whatever other podcast directory you're accessing the podcast on would be greatly appreciated and, of course, helps others find out about the podcast. Before we head on to our great interview with Robin, let's get to our Bluefield on Tap segment this week with Bluefield Research's Reese Tisdale. So take it away, guys. Well, Reese, welcome to another Bluefield on Tap. How are you doing today? I am pretty good, Dave. I am once again in New Hampshire trying, of all things, trying to avoid a uh, bomb cyclone in Boston. <laughs> We're getting two feet of snow today. Uh, so Boston's getting uh, two feet of snow. How's the rest of the country doing from a snow perspective? Um, you know, it, it, we're obviously we're sitting here in the middle of winter. Uh, everyone associates winter with snow, but with climate change, especially in Western regions where snow is becoming, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's always eyes on the snowpack. So what's your kind of impression of that stuff? Well, it's funny if you read the, I, if you read the comments of news articles or Twitter, uh, <laughs> God bless you if you do. Um, the, um, you know, I guess this is part of climate change, right? The bomb cyclone, right? If if the ocean is heated up, it's warmer, it creates more energy for storms to happen, such as this one. But amazingly, what we've seen out west, places like California, 
was only beginning of December where there was the state was in a bit of a panic, uh, implementing conservation measures to, for people to reduce their water consumption. And now their snowpack levels are about where they should be. Now, that happened all in December, and January has been pretty dry. Uh, they haven't gotten <laughs> a lot more snow, but it's just really volatile. So, you know, I would say California is probably having is definitely having a great ski season. And uh, I'm in New Hampshire, honestly, hopefully going to ski today. There's not as much snow uh, as I would hope for. Yeah, well, uh, as not not as much snow. I mean, obviously these these um, uh, resorts can make snow. We're also, uh, and you know, as we were talking before we got on here, the the Winter Olympics is coming, and they're making snow. So, can you talk a little about kind of uh, you know how much does it cost, and how much water, what kind of water resources are we talking about to make all this snow for the Olympics and for ski resorts? Yeah, I mean, this is something that's actually just popped up on my radar recently it's been in the news because the winter olympics start this week uh, go usa um <laughs> but also the ski resorts in china it's about 50 60 miles outside of beijing it doesn't snow there they last year at this time they had two centimeters of snow uh for the research that i've done and so what's interesting is so now they're just making snow and that's not uncommon it happened and uh happened in sochi where about 70 to 80 percent of the snow was man-made it happened in korea in 2018 four years later where about 90 percent of the snow was made and now this is the first time it's 100 percent going to be man-made and so what they've ended up having to do is pipe in water from you know several hours away but uh, they're also just using local supplies which is i think saying it's using as much as as 10% of the local demand outs in the district outside wow. of Beijing. So for the short for the Olympics. Now how much is it? So they're saying it's going to take about 49 million gallons of water to make snow. So that's about 800 Olympic swimming pools. Um <laughs> but although I literally just read this morning I was reading a magazine and it was about outdoor sports. And there's uh, someone in France, a researcher, who said, actually, that estimate is way understated. It might be closer to 1.8 billion gallons to make snow for the Olympics. That's crazy. That's crazy. And so that, is, I mean, that, that's got to put incredible strain on uh, China's water resources. Any, any, any thoughts on how the, the kind of winter sports industry um, in, in making snow, not just for China, but just in general, any, do you see any impacts coming out of uh, strains on water supply from winter sports and snow? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it, look, I mean, snow is water, right? Uh, essentially. So that's the starting point. And I don't think people, I mean, everybody expects it to snow. I think people underestimate the costs associated with snow making overall, whether it be for cross country skiing um, or for, for downhill skiing. Um, so, you know, when you're looking at upwards of $2,000 an hour to make snow um, over, you know, an acre, two acres, hundreds, you know, hundreds of acres, it gets really expensive. And so that is something that is growing concern. I mean, I don't, for any listener to the podcast who skis, it ain't cheap. Um, it's not an inexpensive endeavor. And I think that's one of the industry's challenges, quite honestly, because 40 to 50% of the cost 
really are associated with of a of a, a ski resort's cost are associated with making snow, um, whether that be labor and electricity, the pumping, and the climatic impacts emissions wise. If you think about it, they're using generators to pump all the snow is really massive. So it raises the question is how sustainable is this? But at the same time is, you know, there's a lot of consolidation happening. There are key players that are coming in and gobbling up these resorts. And so there are economies being gained uh, where there may be advantages. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it, you know, it's interesting because Vail Resorts just bought the, uh, you know, I'm in Southern Indiana. We are not known for mountains, and they just Vail Resorts bought the little ski resort or ski area near us. And my daughter went to opening day um, just the other week. So, uh, do you, do you know much about the diversification that's going on there, or or do you see do you have a thought as to why uh, we're seeing seeing that uh, ex- consolidation in the industry? Yeah, I mean, so the big ones are definitely out of the U.S., and I think they've even broadened internationally as well. Um, it's basically Intermountain is one one company, and Vail is the other, and they've been gobbling up resorts from, I mean, from where I am in New Hampshire to, obviously, Indiana to out west. And so they have these large, foot, expanding footprints. So there's obviously econ- op- operational economies of scale. But I think there's some uh, fact to, to um, you know, just climate diversification. Sometimes, like, sometimes it's not snowing as much in California or Colorado, and maybe it's snowing in the east or even in Europe. You know, I think there's part of the moves towards Europe as well. So they get to basically, if you look at it as a portfolio, um, and the three main countries in the world are really regions. It would be. You know, Central Europe is a big ski market. Japan is a big ski market, and obviously the U.S. Yeah, terrific. Well, it's always interesting to take these kind of little detours into uh, water-related industries, even though this isn't like hardcore water. But it's 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 really interesting that you're bringing this type of research uh, to the fore. So thanks so much for doing that, Reese. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's been a fun little exercise over the past <laughs> week digging into this. So I like it. Um, and uh, always happy to talk about this and other things. Yeah, amen. All right, well, Reese, it's been awesome speaking with you. Thanks so much for uh, joining, especially we're, we're recording a little earlier in the morning than we normally do, but uh, so I, I just got to just half a cup of coffee down, so hopefully all this made sense. So, Yeah, I didn't, I didn't even get to get my <laughs> hair done. <laughs> Great. Well, Reese, thanks again. We really appreciate it, and we'll talk to you next month. All right, Dave, take it easy. Look forward to it. Yeah, thanks. Bye. As always, great information from Bluefield Research, this time with Reese Tisdale. Now it's on to our featured guest, Robin Craig, the Robert C. Packard Chair in Law at USC Gould School of Law. So let's get that water flowing. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast, Robin. It's great to have you on. Uh, we've been acquainted for a, a, some time, uh, although it's been a while since we've chatted. How, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine. It's uh, a wonderful day here in Southern California. Oh, I'm jealous. I am jealous. We, although we, I do have sun right now in Indiana, so but uh, I, I imagine your temperatures are uh, more more akin to uh, being outside and doing things fun. Yeah, seventies in January is one of the reasons <laughs> I moved back here. <laughs> uh, Robin, for those who don't know you, could you please give us a little? thumbnail on your background and how you got interested in water. 
All right. Well, I uh, went to law school at the Lewis and Clark School of Law in Portland, Oregon, uh, where I was very fortunate to work for the state of Oregon, both uh, in and slightly after law school. Uh, And the relevance there is I got to work for the state's environmental attorneys, which included a lot of water work and had a wonderful water law course uh, while in law school and uh, got hooked. So I usually get billed as all things water. I do water rights and water law, but also the Clean Water Act, a little bit of Safe Drinking Water Act, Ocean and Coastal Law. Uh, And uh, since then, I've uh, been all over the country teaching. I started in Portland and moved to Massachusetts, Indiana, Florida, Utah, and now Southern California. I grew up in Southern California with drought and potential water issues, and it's been fascinating over that career to watch uh, how differently water issues are treated and how different kinds of issues come up in different parts of the country. Yeah, it's, uh, you have a fascinating career arc, and I think you are the ideal person to uh, chat with about uh, this uh, recent U.S. Supreme Court case, uh, Mississippi versus Tennessee. Could you could you set the stage for us on this Mississippi versus Tennessee case? What what are kind of the factual and procedural background uh, for this case? All right. Well, Mississippi uh, sued Tennessee, uh, basically alleging that Tennessee was stealing Mississippi's groundwater. And because it's one state suing another, uh, procedurally it goes straight to the U.S. Supreme Court. Whenever it's uh, sovereign versus sovereign, state suing state, they have the privilege of going directly to the Supreme Court. But that means unlike most kinds of lawsuits, there's been no finding of fact at a trial court level for the Supreme Court to review. And so what happens in these cases, uh, Mississippi filed the case in 2014, and we got a decision from the Supreme Court seven years later. And that's because we need some extra procedures at the Supreme Court. A special master was appointed Uh, In this case, it was Eugene Seiler, uh, and that special master basically does the fact-gathering for the court uh, and compiles a report. Uh, He had a massive hearing in 2019, uh, submitted his report with recommended findings to the court in 2020, and that's why we didn't get a decision from the U.S. Supreme Court until 2021. But again, the basic issue here was Mississippi accused Tennessee and uh, specifically the Memphis Light, Gas and Water uh, Organization of stealing its groundwater by pumping too much on the Tennessee side of the border. Uh, And why this case was important was it was the first time we had an interstate dispute about groundwater go to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, And so regardless of what the justices decided, we were going to have new law on how states are supposed to share their groundwater. So the uh, the aquifer involved has various names uh, as the Sparta sand formation of the Memphis sand aquifer. Uh, It's got a couple of other names running around, but basically it's a very slow moving aquifer that underlies mostly uh, seven states in the the Mississippi-Tennessee region. 
Uh, and Mississippi claimed that, but for the fact that Memphis was pumping so much water, that water would have stayed under Mississippi and uh, was essentially Mississippi's water. Yeah, it, it's fascinating. I, I saw the map in the special master's report and, you know, it, it, I mean, you're right because it, it covers uh, the, the, the aquifer in question covers uh, all that goes all the way up to Missouri and Kentucky, Tennessee, Arkansas, Louisiana, and Mississippi. So, I mean, maybe even, is there a little piece of uh, Illinois in there too? Yeah, just a little tiny bit. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's fascinating how big this is. And Mississippi was only suing uh, Tennessee. Um, so when, when they said, hey, you're stealing our groundwater, what relief were they seeking? Well, that was part of why the stakes were kind of high in this case, because uh, Mississippi was basically claiming sort of an interstate trespass uh, and theft. And so it wanted more than six hundred million dollars in damages. Uh, And as Tennessee pointed out, uh, if that remedy were allowed, um, all of the states would be suing each other for money. Uh, Tennessee, in fact, had a counterclaim ready to go because Mississippi also uh, pumps water close to the state border. Uh, And so it would just been a free for all, which was one of the things that concerned the justices that with that many states uh, claiming that all the other states were artificially moving the water in the aquifer around, uh, it could get expensive very quickly. One thing that I think maybe our non-legal folks might w- want a, uh, an explanation of, you, you mentioned uh, Memphis Gas and Light was pumping the water. Uh, why was it, why did Mississippi sue Tennessee rather than sue Memphis Gas and Water? Because it, it's more, um, it's faster, I guess is the way to put it. Uh, even though these are very slow cases, uh, to settle who, which state has rights to the aquifer overall. Uh, Tennessee as a state is responsible for the water within its borders. It uh, is in charge of who can pump water and how much, who can take water from streams, whatnot. So uh, going after uh, Memphis, uh, light, gas, and water, might have solved the issue as for Memphis light, gas, and water. But if you see Tennessee, you've solved it for the entire state of Tennessee. <laughs> Cut out the middleman. Um, Cut out the middleman, exactly. <laughs> All right. So how did, the, how did the court come out on this? And, and maybe before we get to that, can you talk a little about equitable apportionment and the briefings the parties filed in this case and what kind of that all, what that revealed about the party's positions to the extent you haven't identified that already in, in, in your explanation of the case? Okay. And, and that's what was important about what Mississippi was asking for. Uh, when states sue each other over shared water resources, and historically that's been rivers, they they use what the court calls the doctrine of equitable apportionment. Now, the court made this up well over a century ago in the case of Kansas versus Colorado over the Arkansas River. That was in 1907. But basically what the Supreme Court decided was these two states or all the states that share a water resource 
are co-equal sovereigns. And water is a critical uh, resource uh, for sovereign states. And therefore, they have to share the resource as co-equal sovereigns. And as a result, the court uh, engages in equitable apportionment, meaning it apportions the waterway, uh, divides it up among the competing states, Equitably. And what goes into the equitable calculus is anything the court thinks is relevant. So who was using the water first? Who is using the water conservatively? Who is wasting the water? Uh, what the natural amount of the waterway is in each state? Uh, like I said, basically anything the Supreme Court thinks is relevant can go into that calculus. The kicker is, however, that the complaining state has a high bar of injury to show. So uh, with rivers, it's almost always the downstream state that files these lawsuits. And the court has said that the, the, the complaining state has to show a clear and convincing evidence of substantial injury from the other state or state's use of the shared waterway. And that was one reason Mississippi probably didn't want to use equitable apportionment is uh, almost certainly it could not have shown that high bar of injury and hence would not have been able to either prevent Tennessee from pumping the groundwater or get any money for it. In equitable apportionment cases, uh, there's no damages until there's a clear apportionment and one state violates that apportionment. So in the briefing, Mississippi uh, was repeatedly told by pretty much everyone that equitable apportionment was its cause of action and it steadfastly refused to plead an equitable apportionment claim. Uh, instead going for this invasion of its sovereign territory and theft of its water. Uh, Tennessee, on the other hand, and all of the uh, amicus uh, parties who participated in the case, including the United States itself, uh, told the court this is an equitable apportionment case, uh, it needs to be decided on equitable apportionment grounds. Basically, Mississippi has not asked for that remedy. And so maybe you should just dismiss the case until they're willing to ask for that remedy. But that that was the, the gist of the pleading. As these cases go, it, it posed a fairly cut and dry legal issue uh, is equitable apportionment the right cause of action, or does Mississippi have other options? Yeah, and was there anything interesting about uh, the oral argument? Where there's you know specific uh, fields of inquiry that the court was was exploring, or or like you say, was it pretty cut and dried? Uh, well, the issue was cut and dried, but clearly the justices were concerned about their authority uh, both ways. That was one of the things that was, was interesting about it. Uh, they, were, they were clearly concerned about what would happen if Mississippi got its way, uh, if this doctrine of stealing water was allowed uh, by the court. Um, you know, the justices had all sorts of fanciful uh, 
uh, hypo- hypotheticals about shared resources, uh, wild horses moving from state to state, or uh, Justice Breyer bringing up what if someone captured some San Francisco fog and transported it to another state, would California have a cause of action under Mississippi's doctrine? So they were clearly worried about how far Mississippi's requested doctrine could extend, but they were also a little concerned about their own authority under equitable apportionment, how far that should go. Uh, And so they were asking questions about how to put boundaries on equitable apportionment as well. Uh, So there there was some clear concern about uh, the from the justices about these interstate relationships. And once we get into groundwater, there was clearly a specter that they didn't want to be deciding a lot of groundwater battles into the future, but how to decide it and how to put limits on either of these doctrines was uh, foremost on their minds. Yeah. Very interesting stuff. A lot of uh, intrigue and, and stuff we can learn from that, but Let's get to the opinion. Can you give us what the holding of the the Supreme Court was and uh, talk a little bit about about that? And was it a surprise? And did everyone see this kind of coming? I mostly everyone saw it coming. Um, <laughs> it, it was a, a clear, decisive statement that equitable apportionment applies to groundwater. Uh, basically, the court said, look, if the resource flows across state boundaries, no matter how slowly, which means almost all aquifers will be subject to equitable apportionment if they flow across state lines, uh, equitable apportionment is your cause of action. And the court was very clear about that. Uh, the other thing that was interesting was that the court uh, did not let... Mississippi amend its pleading. This was a more technical procedural ground, but there had been an issue of if the court decided against Mississippi, would it let Mississippi amend its complaint and ask for equitable apportionment? And the court basically said Mississippi hasn't asked to do it. In fact, it steadfastly refused to do it. So we've got no motion to grant on that and we're dismissing the case. So the case is over and we now all know that equitable apportionment applies to any groundwater resource that flows across state lines, uh, no matter how, how slowly that flow occurs. Yeah. Uh, so, and that, that's a, gr- a great point because uh, the, the aquifer, I believe uh, the water only flowed like two inches a year or something like that. Um, there was a, it was a very limited, uh, movement of the water. Is that, is that correct? Yes. Uh, it's a slow flow, but as the court also point out it, because it's a big aquifer, it's a broad aquifer that actually adds up to a lot of water, even a slow flow. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so the slow flow, uh, didn't matter. It doesn't have to be a rushing river, to garner equitable apportionment as the the doctrine to use. Yeah, and I should correct myself, one or two inches a day rather than a year. A day, so yes. I, uh, okay. Now, how do you think states are going to change their water policies uh, based on this 
this you know now known doctrine of equitable apportionment that applies to both groundwater and surface water. Well, that will be what's interesting to watch in the future, uh, because we do have some aquifers that are clearly coming into conflict. Uh, Utah and Nevada at one point, not too many years ago, were poised uh, to go uh, go to war, go to court over an aquifer that they share, the Snake Valley Aquifer. Uh, that case went away in the interim because of conniptions within Nevada uh, on, in, regarding Nevada water law and the ability of basically Las Vegas to pump the aquifer and transport it across public lands uh, down to Las Vegas. Uh, but now that conflict is coming back on the Utah side. So that's one aquifer where conflict is in the offing. Uh, the other one that everyone's kind of keeping an eye on is the High Plains Aquifer, better known as the Ogallala Aquifer, which stretches uh, more or less down the middle of the country from Texas up into the Dakotas. And um, that's being overdrafted in, in certain parts at a tremendous rate uh, with states that have very different groundwater laws, including Texas down at the bottom, which basically is the strongest adherent to the oldest rule of the rule of capture for groundwater. Basically, if you pump it, it's yours. Uh, that's been modified a little bit for the High Plains Aquifer under Texas groundwater law, but still, uh, that's a conflict waiting to happen, and that aquifer irrigates a lot of acres in the heart of the breadbasket of the United States. So one thing to watch is whether there are other aquifers that are primed for conflict where one state or another actually could show the injury that the Supreme Court requires. I think in the more immediate run, uh, there are a lot of states where aquifers and surface waters are connected. Uh, and in fact, there are already a lot of interstate river compacts where groundwater has gotten involved in the conflict one way or another. Uh, people who couldn't use the surface water turned to pumping groundwater, which turned out to deplete the surface water and violated the compact. So I think a lot of states are now on a sure footing that when they're negotiating about conjunctive surface water and groundwater use, they can be relatively certain that the same rules apply to these interstate resources, uh, which quite frankly could allow for some horse trading. There, there are a lot of interstate compacts uh, which are like contracts between states uh, regarding water resources that need to be updated. They were negotiated a century ago or close to a century ago. Climate change is happening. Development is happening in, in ways that aren't, weren't always anticipated. We understand far more now than we did a century ago about how groundwater and surface water are interconnected. And so I think maybe some of the first things we see are states that already have relationships about their shared water resources, uh, maybe doing a little bit more bargaining, maybe reaching out to actively incorporate their shared groundwater resources 
as well as their shared surface water resources. And one example is a conflict that the Supreme Court addressed last term at the end of its 2020 to 2021 term between Florida and Georgia over the Apalachicola, Chattahoochee, Flint River system. Uh, again, uh, that's a system where there's both groundwater pumping and surface water use going on. Florida uh, was the complaining state, the downstream state, very interested in keeping flows in the Apalachicola River for the endangered species in the river, but also the oyster production in the estuaries at the end of that river in, in Apalachicola Bay. Uh, given this ruling, there might be room for Florida and Georgia to swap. Maybe Florida gives up a little bit of its equitable rights to the groundwater in exchange for Georgia giving up uh, a little bit of its equitable rights to the surface water so that Florida can keep that oyster production and those endangered species healthy. Uh, like I said, I think it just opens up a lot more uh, options for cross-resource swapping and negotiations than states were sure they had before. Yeah, yeah. And I think you've touched on it a little bit, but I'd like to get into uh, uh, the the equitable apportionment versus interstate compact. And what okay. what are the two differences? I mean, could you, could you describe that for our listeners, please? <laughs> okay. Well, the, the equitable apportionment, you go to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court makes the decision. Uh, so the Supreme Court, when it grants an equitable apportionment, which I should note is very rare because of that injury threshold, uh, it actually divides the waterway up between the states or among the states, depending on how many states are involved. It's a little unpredictable. Um, depending on how you count, the Supreme Court has done it three times to five times in its history. Uh, a couple of them are a little dicey because they involve some congressional intervention, uh, but it doesn't do it very often is the point of that. So um, under the U.S. Constitution... States are forbidden from entering into agreements with each other over national scale issues without Congress's permission. Uh, but the negative implication of the compact clause is that if Congress signs on, states can negotiate their own agreements. Uh, interstate waterways clearly raise national level interests. There's uh, navigation interests involved. There's interstate issues involved. So everyone's been clear from the get go that interstate waters would require a compact between the states that Congress approved. But Congress, if the states are on board, Congress is usually more than happy to approve uh, compacts. And in fact, has given its permission in advance of some of them to encourage the states to enter into these agreements. Uh, and as a result, a lot of major interstate rivers in the United States have compacts on them. Uh, so does Lake Tahoe uh, in between California and Nevada. Uh, and what the advantage for states is it's not... 
uh, as much of um, a roll of the dice. Uh, when you go to the Supreme Court, you're never quite sure what the Supreme Court might do. Uh, the states can negotiate these. They can negotiate a lot of the details of these interstate compacts. They can say how much water has to be delivered by the upstream state at a certain point each year. They can do it on an average basis. They can come up with a percentage of flow uh, for rivers that, you know, whatever, however much water is in the river in any given year, state one gets X percentage, state two gets Y percentage, state three gets Z percentage. They can set it up however makes sense for them. Uh, and, and like you say, Congress, usually if, if the state's senators and representatives are on board with the compacts, Congress almost always approves them. Uh, and, and so, like I said, with this, this introduction of this groundwater variable being under the same rule uh, for states that want to pursue these agreements, and some of them get quite complex, they can now bring groundwater uh explicitly within the interstate compact realm yeah it, it's it's really just high stakes litigation in a water context because you know if you go to the if you go to the jury essentially that's that's the equitable apportionment route you can get greater certainty uh you may not get as much as you want but you're you're not you're 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 protecting your your downside risk Exactly. Um, yeah. Exactly. Although you never get a jury in an equitable portion well, of the case. But, yeah. Yeah. I was, but, yeah. You know what I was talking about. Okay. Uh, yeah. You get the justice. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it, it, it's just more control, uh, more give and take, more compromise uh, available. You can do more complicated things than the Supreme Court is, is likely to do. It's just like writing any other contract, basically. And that's how these compacts are interpreted. Yep. Yep. Robin, you've been absolutely fantastic today. I really appreciate your time because uh, you've walked us through some some pretty uh, groundbreaking things. I, I kind of feel like the Mississippi-Tennessee case kind of went under the radar, so to speak, uh, in a lot of a lot of areas. Maybe that's because people figured that's how it was going to come out. But I think you've shed a lot of interesting light and points uh, concerning the case. So I, I appreciate your time to uh, explain those. Um, do you have a leave behind message about the case that you'd like to, to share? Well, I think, I think it's a very important case in light of what climate change is doing to water resources across the country. We were already starting to see more interstate fights between Eastern states, which historically has been rare, but that's because Eastern states are now getting whipsawed between drought and flood uh, and so I, I think the most important part of this case going forward is that uh, as all states are dealing with changing water resources, they now know what the ground rules are for negotiating among themselves. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Robin. Really appreciate it. For those who want to find out more about you and your work, where can they go to find that information? Uh, they can go to my faculty webpage at the University of Southern California Gould School of Law. Awesome. We'll put that in the links in the show notes. Uh, for those listening at home, you can uh, navigate to the, the landing page for this episode and we'll have the link there for you. Robin, again, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Bye. 
terrific interview by Robin. And isn't it comforting to know that water wasn't so divisive amongst the justices on the Supreme Court? You know, water shouldn't divide us, but rather bring us all together. And that's that's kind of what happened on the Supreme Court in the Mississippi versus Tennessee case. The Supreme Court issued a unanimous decision. Well, I would love to know what you thought about that interview. Please check out the show notes page for the and for information and links on this episode. Just Google the Water Valleys podcast and click the first link that comes up. That'll take you to our landing page on Bluefield Research's site. Again, Water Values LLC and Bluefield Research are not affiliates. We just have a joint marketing arrangement. And as part of that, Bluefield Research is kind enough to give the Water Values a home on the web. You can also tweet about the podcast using the hashtag water values and tweet at me using my handle at DTM1993. And you can email me at david.mcgimsey at dentons.com. And you can sign up for the Water Values newsletter on that landing page we talked about with the show notes earlier. Thank you again for tuning in, and I hope you make it a great day. Plus, I want to give another shout out to our terrific sponsors of the Water Values podcast. And those sponsors, again, for 2022 include Xylem the American Water Works Association, Black & Veatch, Can Do, Mentor APM, 374 Water, Woodard & Curran, and Intera. This show would not be possible without those great companies and industry leaders. And again, thanks for your support and for listening. I can't tell you how good it feels to be part of the water industry, bringing such caring and dedicated professionals together every day. And I just feel fortunate that I get to interact with all of you. Well, in closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Well, thank you for tuning in to the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Indiana and Colorado, and nothing in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or with anyone else. Additionally, nothing in this podcast should be considered a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer that finds water issues interesting and that believes greater public education is needed about water issues. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water.